Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. I remember when, when Nick Drake died, I didn't, I didn't really know about it for about, possibly, I don't know, a week or, or two weeks, because the only way you could find out in those days was the music press. The wider press weren't going to write about him. And, and do you remember Jim Morrison? And Jim Morrison died in 1971. I'm pretty sure the first word of it anywhere in the press was the melody maker ran a piece, short piece, saying we've heard a rumour from Paris that Jim Morrison had died and they obviously couldn't confirm it. And then it wasn't until a week later that they got a confirmation from Los Angeles that it happened. So effectively two weeks contrast that with the news of the, of the death of Michael Nesmith on Friday evening, you know, which within minutes is absolutely everywhere all over the internet. And, you know, and is suddenly interesting, Media, they wouldn't necessarily expect to be interested in it. You know, the Today program and all the newspapers and all these kind of all these kind of outlets want to know Michael Nesmith, and it just struck me. Now I know Michael Nesmith is, is not an obscure figure at all because he you know, did all sorts of extraordinary things over the course of an extraordinary life, but it struck me the obscure rock death just doesn't happen anymore. No, it doesn't. You know, the, the person who dies forgotten, it doesn't happen. Because there will be fans out there of some kind that will, you know, will wish to have the, have this noted. And in the same way that no matter how obscure you might be, there's somebody always flying a flag for you. Aren't there? There's somebody writing about Nick Jones' penguin eggs, or they're writing about Vashti Bunyan yes. or something, you know. And that's great. Yes. All those people's it reputations is. are kept alive, you know. I love it that. is, because... It- because as we, you know, we talk about Michael Nesmith, there was a period where, and obviously pre-internet, where his reputation was completely, the frame of his reputation was entirely down to one small magazine in the UK, which is Zigzag. Yeah. Zigzag was the only media outlet in the world that cared what Michael Nesmith yes, was true. doing yeah. for that period, you know, in the, in the, in the middle seventies. Absolutely extraordinary. But anyway, Michael Nesmith, I mean, he, you know, he I was, was listening a, to one of his records this morning, Dave. 
and I've got to quote you a lyric. It's so lovely. I'm hearing the light from the window. I'm seeing the sound of the sea. My feet have come loose from their moorings. I'm feeling quite wonderfully free. Isn't that a great lyric? It it is. Hearing the light. It's it's only a whimsical notion to fly down to Rio tonight. And I probably won't fly down to Rio. But then again, again, I I just might. might. Uh, there's wonderful, Isn't that lovely? And the words actually perfectly echo the, the kind of the characteristic of Nesmith's music throughout his career, which is, which is kind of lightness. Yeah. You know, the anti-gravity feeling about all Mike Nesmith's music. There was nothing heavy, nothing abrasive about Mike Nesmith's music, really. Um but he'd already he he got some kind of foothold in the in the music business before the monkeys, hadn't he? Because oh, he had. The- well, he just came out. He'd been in the Air Force before that, extraordinary. He'd written various songs. He'd had a Paul Butterfield blues band recorded Mary Mary. He had a publishing deal. He'd written quite a few songs actually, and then he got tipped off when he was twenty three that um, Bob Raffleson and Bert Schneider were trying to put together this 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 knockabout uh, comedy, kind of based on sort of based on the idea that in Help. There's that moment when the Beatles walk through their four individual doors, do you remember, and finish yep. up in a communal living space. And that's kind of the idea of the whole thing, really, is that these kind of it Beatles is. alike. Also, a genius thing, which I never realised at the time, I was 12 when it started, about, that actually there's no adult supervision in the monkeys. There's no, no. adult characters. It's just this free-form knockout kids, crazy kids having a wonderful Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. But, you know, he was signed as an actor, and not required to play, and not required to write. I mean, he did write. He had two songs, in fact, on the first uh, first album. But mostly it was, you know, Neil Diamond, I'm a Believer, and uh, Boyce and Hart. Doing Boyce and Hart and, and Carol King, all kinds of people. Carole really King. good songwriters. Oh, really good. Pleasant. I mean, the monkey, I thought the monkey song, those hits were fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But for him, it curdled quite quickly. I can remember being very attracted to the idea as a kid, actually, that he was the one who seemed to be sending it all up. He seemed to be, he seemed to be a bit, uncomfortable about it and a bit embarrassed about it all. If you looked at them when they were meant to be miming, he would deliberately mime really badly mm. and mm. send it all up. And um, very soon he got very hacked off because he thought he should be writing more songs. And, uh, you know, in fact, very outspoken. I mean, I think at one point he met, there was a press conference where he was talking about More of the Monkeys, which was their second album. He described it as probably the worst record in the history of the world. <laughs> <laughs> band that he's actually in, you know. So uh, it all. I mean, he was very, very uncomfortable, and, and was obviously writing more stuff at the time. He wrote different drum for for Stone Ponies, you know, Linda Ronstadt's band, and what was just very frustrated by it. And then discovered, of course, that had he been in a rock band, he could have probably just flounced out. But this was a TV contract, so he had to done. buy his way out, and yeah. he ended up paying one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to get out of the the monkeys. And which he could, which he could by then he could well afford because they they made so much money and so in such a short period of time. I mean, if you weren't around at the time, you you won't be aware of the fact just how huge the monkeys were, sort of 66, 67. You know, so huge that I think the reason the reason the Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever were peeled off Sergeant Pepper and put out as a single. Was to was to wrest back the spotlight from the monkeys, which you know was entirely They'd the monkeys the vacuum, were, were, were the most popular pop group in the world, you know, yeah. for that for that period of time. Anyway, I've been getting out his um <laughs> his various solo efforts. 
And I found this this morning, which I haven't played in absolutely years. Um, 1967, um, facing a tax bill, he had to get rid of, you know, quite a lot of money or, or spend it, you know, so that he didn't, so that he didn't get all his tax in one year. You know, he spread it out over a number of years. And so he needed to get rid of $50,000. So he hired all of L.A.'s session men, and I mean all of L.A.'s session men, you know, four piano players, ten drummers, all this kind of stuff, hired them for a weekend where it was, as a consequence, double time, and just got them in the studio to kind of jam their way through a load of his songs. And that, and that's the record that, that resulted came out in 1968. It's called Mike Nesmith Presents the Wichita Train Whistle Sings. And um, it's arranged by Shorty Rogers and uh, it features all the LA session men, which you would think would make it really good. But actually, it's unlistenable. It's <laughs> genuinely unlistenable. But it I didn't matter. The point anyone. was to just get rid of a load of cash. Get rid of the cash. Quick before somebody else took it. Quick as he possibly could. Yeah, but yeah. then but then, you know, he, he left the group and he and he, he formed um you know the first national band who were a kind of and they made these four records here, which you've got Magnetic South, Loose Salute, Nevada Fighter, Tantamount to Treason, Volume One, all came out in RCA. I can only describe these as a kind of cross between the Flying Burrito Brothers and Van Dyke Parks, yeah. if, if two such things had ever been allowed to come together. You know, absolutely beautiful, impressionistic, all sorts of interesting um, production techniques being used in there. And then kind of old country songs and Royal Rogers tunes and She Thinks I Still Care and Tumbling Tumbleweeds and all these kind of things. These records were absolutely beautiful still are you could not give them away <laughs> these records and they all came on rca which had been the monkey's record label and obviously they must have been contractually obliged to press up a certain number and to make sure they were in a certain number of outlets so as a consequence these records all shipped gold returned platinum <laughs> <laughs> and um, and in the mid-70s, you could pick up these records in every bargain bin you in could. the United Kingdom and the United States. Yeah, Absolutely. A regular fixture. And I've got I've got these four, and they're, they're four of my most prized records. And I doubt if I paid more than 75p for any of them. No, they were they were absolutely everywhere. So those records came out, and you know, in the words of uh, of uh, P.G. Woodhouse. Died like a louse in a Russian's beard, and and so consequently, <laughs> his next record was called. That's the record. I love it. This. Was called, it was called, and the hits, the hits keep, keep on coming. coming. <laughs> that's that's the kind of you know the kind of sense of humour that Michael Nesbitt had absolutely all through. I found this today. He started his own record label because he could afford to do these things. Because we here we should talk about. His late mother. Well, two big sources of income, weren't there? It was his mum's thing and Pacific Betty Nesmith. 
And well, uh, the second well, big mum invented later a, a, on, a correction fluid, didn't she? Called liquid. She, his mother was yeah. and raised him alone. You know, she was separated from his father. Uh, she raised him alone, and she was a legal secretary, and clearly a woman of considerable resource, because she she invented a form of liquid correction paper, which, for the benefit of, <laughs> for the benefit of younger listeners. And you fulfilled the function that the delete key on your computer now now <laughs> fulfills. It was it was the thing that the the, the media economy absolutely depended on. Incredible yeah. now that we used to, when you made a mistake with your typing, you would get this little pot out and you would paste with a tiny brush this kind of white paint yes. over the top of it. When it dried, you, you could then type over it. You type over the top of it. I remember smash the, its copy. You know, the, Sometimes it used to rock on the table. It was so hard with Tipex. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, anyway, he could afford to start a record label. He started a, a label called Countryside. And uh, I found this this morning, which is one wonderful example of uh, Michael Nesmith's gallows humour. He, he put out a record uh, by his steel player, which is it's kind of nice record. It's got a lovely title, like so many Michael Nesmith records. Lovely, lovely title. This is called Velvet Hammer in a Cowboy Band. Isn't lovely. that beautiful? Yeah, it is. Velvet Hammer in a Cowboy Band. And so the inner bag has got, here for your convenience, I've got a picture, here for your convenience are the many other fine album in the vast countryside catalogue. And it's got a picture of one other record, <laughs> which is the Carl and Frady record, Pure Country. You know, so if you bought a CBS record of those in those days, you got hundreds of things. That's right. Countryside, they had one other fine oh, album in it. the vast collection. I love it for that. And, uh, and then this, which I think is probably, uh, well, I was playing it only this morning. It seemed to go with the fact the sun was shining. Perfect early morning stash. I'm trying to, yeah. Pretty much your standard average ranch stash. Uh, pretty much your standard ranch stash, which he, he came out in the, in the mid 70s. Which uh, on the, it, again, the humor, it's got a very nice picture of him here wearing a cowboy hat. He's just yeah. winking. And if you close up on uh, alongside his wink, it says, buy this record. Yes. <laughs> Knowing that nobody would at all. And, um, it's gone on the second side of this, which I do heartily recommend. I'm going to offer you a slight tangent here, Mark, involving my, one of my few experiences with drugs. Can I do this? Go on. I don't think, well, you have never told me this, I don't think. My goodness. Okay. I'm, I'm very bad with drugs. I, you know, I always have been. I, don't, I know you you're know, hopeless. I, they're too much faff, you know, they're just too much trouble, you know, and they turn people into raging bores in my experience. But anyway, true. Um, in 1974 or whenever it was that this record came out, I was living in a flat in uh, uh, above Wood Green High Road uh, with Stuart, one of my flatmates. I remember. And we were both very big on Michael Nesmith, and, uh, and we somehow... You know, you know, Danny, Danny Kelly, and Danny Baker tell the story about when they attempted to go to. Oh, when they were in Amsterdam, they go to. A when they went to Amsterdam to try and they take. They can't get anything right. They, they, oh, you need skins. You have to buy some papers. Then well, me and Stuart were a bit like that. You know, it was just impractically. We couldn't deal with the kind of Blue Peter end of drug taking. You know, they, they like to cut to the consumption end of it rather than the, the construction yeah, end yeah, of it. Yeah. But anyway, we managed to to configure some form of joint and we listened 
to Michael Nesmith uh, that record while under the influence of <laughs> mild, mildly under the influence of cannabis resin or whatever. And, um, and it was extraordinary. I can remember halfway through the second side when uh, when he does this the, stuff um, isn't isn't underrated at all absolutely <laughs> when they were when oh, he burst from he burst from the ffv to uncle pen his version of uncle pen well we just sat there and the smiles all over our faces and i thought this is how a lot of people listen to music absolutely all the time and i can entirely it's, see why they do but they get then again would have wanted is what michael nesmith would definitely have wanted but then again, I thought afterwards, no, nah, I can't be asked, you know, to, be, to go to all that trouble. I'd rather deal with this kind of stuff sober, you know. But um, so Michael Nesmith, uh, extraordinary career. And he, he, um, he later on, and, and he had the inventor of video it's a story, isn't it? Event, well, absolutely. You know, he, he, was, he, had, a he had the record Rio that, we're, that yeah. we were, you know, we were talking about earlier. And Ireland, <coughs> Ireland Records wanted to put it out, and they thought it was a hit, quite rightly, because he got played on the radio lots. Everybody yeah, yeah. liked Rio, but it was never a hit. And they were looking for a way to promote him. They just gave him some money, said, just make a thing called a video. And so he, he made a kind of abstract-type video. Well, it's abstract. It's not, it's not a performance video, is it? I no. mean, you could argue Bohemian Rhapsody and stuff. It's kind of them singing the song. But this is a kind of strange, kind of science fiction, sort of old kind of fantasy, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it, it definitely kind of foreshadowed lots of the things that happened in, in video later on. But he was involved in video. He was, he was a great believer in the in the video disc. I think and he probably invested. He had a company called Pacific Arts, which did yeah. invest in things because he had money to invest. And he bought the home video rights to some of uh, uh, PBS's most popular programs. Uh, PBS is the American Nature. Public That's Broadcasting, right. yeah. and they sued him over royalties, and. Uh, and he, he took him to court and he won, which is remarkable. And they awarded him, the court awarded him $47 million. And I got a quote here, and he was asked what he thought about it. This is PBS, which is like the American BBC, you know, who, who'd, who'd taken him to court. He says, it's like, it's like catching your grandmother stealing your stereo. You're glad to get your stereo back, but you're sad to find out that grandma's a thief. <laughs> The Word Podcast, prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So 40 years ago, at number one, was Don't You Want Me? Which my I, God, is it really yeah, 40? Oh, my God. When we were at Smash Hits, in fact, sticking oh, them on the cover. And okay. uh, which I think is an interesting story because Phil Oakey hated that song. He hated he it. He wanted on the album, and he refused it, and eventually he had to compromise, and they let... In, they, they put it on as the last track on the, the last track on the album, <laughs> and then they trouble. decide after I know they decide after two hits already that they thought it would be a, a, a big single. Martin Rush and the producer and Simon Draper at Virgin, and Oki was so resistant to it that he would only allow it out if you got a large poster free with each seven-inch single because he thought it was such a ripple. Describe it as our Des O'Connor song, and of course <laughs> it was a massive hit and a massive hit. Partly because um, 
it was a duet. It's, it's kind of it's like a country western song, isn't it? There's that kind of a, it's that it's that response between the two of them, and uh, the fact that the, the girls were now part of the Human League, which made a lot of difference. I mean, originally actually he was going to sing that song as a, as, a, as a solo, but then he saw a star is born and thought that a duet would be a good idea. But the joining of the girls, I think, is is an extraordinary story because I, I completely mm. forgotten this that they Martin Weir. Uh, Martin Ware, sorry, and Ian Craig Marsh had just left, hadn't they? Yeah. And he was in debt, uh, Oki and the Human League, massively in debt to Virgin because they hadn't really had any hits. They were contracted to go on tour. If they didn't do this tour, there was going to be a legal action whereby they would be relieved of so much cash that the group would go bust. So he had to recruit new members of the band and fulfil the tour um, obligation and then decided to go with his girlfriend to the Crazy Daisy disco. And all that was true in Sheffield. <laughs> the Crazy what, Daisy. The Crazy Daisy. And look at various people. And they saw these two girls on the dance floor. One was 17, I think one was 18, you know, and who <laughs> danced okay. They weren't great dancers, but they just looked interesting and he thought they looked glamorous. He offered them the job on the spot to be members of the Human League and come on this European tour. They were at school, you know. And uh, they had to go to the school and say, would it be all right if you went on this tour? And amazingly, the school said that they thought it'd be educational and they were allowed to do it. He, he then asked their parents, they said, absolutely not. So Phil Oakey, this is where it becomes a movie. This is Phil Oakey, you remember at the time, had the lopsided hair. Yeah. He had the red lipstick on stage, the chain on his ear, the red high heels. Do you remember? He's not. He's not a figure to reassure a nervous parent. No, he's not. Not. And he then went round to their to Jan and Suzanne's Su- 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 <laughs> parents' houses to reassure them that they, which you would have thought was the worst possible idea. I know. I know. Incredible and astonishingly, they said yes, and that was the major transformative moment for the human league really i think apart from the fact they're writing slightly better kind of pop songs but just the the look of them the way that connected the idea that you had these two girls that anybody in the audience thought was kind of that, that could almost be me you know they're not it great was. dancers they're not great singers they're, they're kind of like members of the audience who got up on stage and uh you know i, I bless them what a great record many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wagovi and zeb pound for those who qualify plus they accept most insurance plans to get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
I can't think of a group more utterly transformed by the addition of, of two members than the Human League were. No, because before that, they were kind of electronics boffins, weren't they? They were. The they belonged to the, art, the, the arts pages before then, and you know, and after them, they belonged on, on the front pages. And of course, yeah. they're, they're still around, aren't they? Still so, around. They're still, still, still playing. It's still performing. Extraordinary. Another another anniversary. Oh, it's the ELO record, wasn't it? Well, it's it's fifty years, uh, fifty years since the release of the first ELO record, um, which obviously had Roy Wood alongside um, Jeff Lynne with uh, one oh five three eight orchestra overture or whatever it's called, yeah. and. Um, and and of course it, that means it's fifty years since uh, the the uh, the American uh, version of it came out, which um, they weren't sure whether it had a title or not. So somebody from the American record company was delegated delegated to call um, the English record company and check whether it had a title or not. And so uh, this person tried and eventually came back with with, with the uh, the reply, no answer, no answer on a note, right. on a note. So consequently, when the record came out of the United States, it was called No Answer <laughs> by the Electric Light Orchestra. I love that story. Happy days. I Happy know. Day. Did they try and explain what it was? Because I can remember with Odyssey and Oracle. Do you remember that? By, by uh, um, Zombies. Yeah. Zombies. And that the Odyssey was spelt wrong, um, and they 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 just had they just tried to kind of uh, you know say it was deliberate, but actually the guy the graphic designer simply couldn't spell it right, and then nobody subbed it, you know, and you're stuck. Yeah, with and, it and checking things was hard in those days. It was the other thing. The other thing that led us to reflect upon the fact that 50 years ago this week, I think the American charts were top by what is still the most radical record ever to go to number one in the United States of America. What am I talking about, Frank Zappa? No. What am I talking about, Country Joe and the Fish? No. What am I talking about, Led Zeppelin? No, Stone. no, no. It's yeah. Lie and the Family yeah, Stone. Yeah. There's a riot going on, which, which is absolutely, you know, if you listen to it now, 50 years later, you think, what planet has that come from? How strange, how radical, how utterly out there in every single respect is, is there's a riot going on. And because it was taken there by the fact that the biggest, you know, one of the biggest singles of the year and the single that absolutely everybody loved was uh, Family Affair, Family of Affair. Course, which got played on every single radio station. But if you listen to, well, they to had that a record, big white stand, following too, didn't they? After Woodstock, oh, it was, it was big, big. It was just, it was everybody like this line yeah. the Family Stone, and um, and also one of the first uh, first examples of a kind of rhythm machine being used on a record. Yeah, it's, that it's was a, it's a drum machine, isn't it? It's a rhythm king drum machine. Yeah, it was called, uh, and I'm pretty sure the same, the exact same instrument was used on another record made round about the same time, but didn't come out until the following year. Which is apparently from a very different point of the compass, 
but they use the same tools, which is J.J. Kale's Call Me the Breeze, which starts, if you hear it now, it starts with a sound. Yeah, it's got a very, very particular sound, doesn't it? Yeah, very, very particular sound. And those are the revolutions, aren't they? They're very often the revolution, the the musical revolutions are very often rhythmic rather than anything else, you know. They find me a different way of doing the rhythm, you know. like the Bee Gees on whatever yeah. whichever of the Bee Gees records it was, but they looped the tape, you know, because the drummer had gone to a funeral. Um, and George McRae's Rockier Baby. And, uh, and you know, not long afterwards, Donna Summer, I Feel Love, you know, which Brian you know, took to the session and played it to David Bowie and said, in the future, all records will sound like this. And how right he and was. And he was right. Absolutely. How right he was. Yeah. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. Any other business, we're joined by, as ever, by Alex Geld. Alex has just come off stage pretty much from being, what, who, Keith Richard? Yeah. You remember the Rolling Stones? I do Because uh, Alex, as, 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 as regular listeners will know, was playing the part of John Lennon about a week ago. They went straight to Ian McLagan of the Small Faces. And last night, Keith Richards. Sensational. Yeah, I got a call it- first thing on Friday morning saying... Uh, uh, we've lost, we've lost our Keith. We don't know where he is. They literally don't know where he is. Oh, he wandered. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's on brand. <laughs> can't get in touch with him. He's gone completely off grid. Can you do three co- nights at a theatre in Bridge North from tonight? A coconut had fallen out of a tree and <laughs> yeah. not yeah, yeah, somewhere. Right. So you, the, the three right. nights at a theatre in Bridge North, Shropshire. Is that right? It is Shropshire. Yeah, it's it's the theatre on the steps, and it is literally mid. So Bridge North is. It's a two-tiered town. Half of it's on top of the cliff and half of it's in a valley. And the theatre is sort of halfway up the cliff. So it's literally in the middle of about 500 steps. So three um, nights. Three, three nights. nights. Yeah. That's Very really good. good. Very big crowds. Good. How big's the audience? Uh, it's, it's a small theatre. Probably holds two, 250 people, I'd say. That's great. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's been it's been healthily attended both nights. Tonight's probably going to be quieter. It is Sunday after all. But, um, you know, it's... Um, you know, also considering the current unpleasantness, it seems to be That's really healthy. Good. So, yeah, lots of people in mass. I think I forgot to house. mention, one thing I forgot to mention when we were talking about Michael Nesmith, uh, you know, I picked up, we were saying, saying I picked up those wonderful records in the early 70s for about 70, I don't think I paid more than 75p for any of them. And uh, yesterday I was in town and uh, I'm on a, bit, uh, on a bit of a jazz buying, you know, tip yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. i haven't i haven't to, i haven't to go into fop and uh you know there's a there's a rack they've racked out a load of yeah I, I don't know if there's just a load of overstocked cds that have been sitting in some kind of warehouse or whatever and so you know i ended up buying kenny burrell's midnight blue there lee morgan's sidewinder the first herbie hancock record the Gil Evans Orchestra, Sonny Rollins, The Bridge, Miles Davis in concert, four pounds each. Four pounds wow. each. Ridiculous. So it's ridiculous. just ridiculous. And so here is my point that I'd like to place before the massive and see if people have got, yeah, if they think it's right or if it's wrong. Is it not the case, ladies and gentlemen of the jury? Is <laughs> I it think you'll not find. the case? I think you'll find places, hands on lapels. I think you'll find that the less you pay for a record, the better it is. Because if you're paying a lot of money for a record, it's usually new. 
that's how it works. And you haven't kind of worked out whether it's worth it or not. If it's still on the market years later in some shape or form at a budget price, it's probably better. Is that not the case? The records you paid hardly anything for have turned out to be the, because the biggest winners of Because you're with the fact that you've already had your £4 value after listening to the first two tracks. I suppose so. But, you know, if somebody's bothered to put this record out and make it available again, you know, 50 years after it was made, it's probably quite good. If it's if it's the latest thing, though, here's here's the I put this forward. I think this is pretty pretty infallible. <laughs> New records are overrated. Old records are underrated. Has to be the case because it's just the it's the machinery of the business. Is is well, isn't that know, the engine that drives all the new things in, in music magazines? It's always kind of massive enthusiasm for the new one because you you know you're you're caught up in I don't know just the fact that it's out and it's new and you want that group on the cover of your magazine and uh, and you want it to be good. But it's uh, I remember on Q I think didn't we start a thing I think I think I started the thing where people start to re-review records three or four maybe six months later when they've lived with them for a while. Occasionally, you put a little column in saying these things turned out to be fantastic. Yeah, you've know, yeah. got a chance to get used to them. That's what you want to know. So, if anybody's got any experience with that, we'd be interested in hearing about it. What what email would people use to get in touch with us, Alex? I suppose emails rather rather old fashioned way of doing it. Isn't it? Wiye dot london at gmail dot com is 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 where we live. Okay, and uh, we new got patrons. some really. Have we got any new patrons? You want to do that, Alex? I, I think we have them. I'm finally in a position, I think I jokingly I said ages ago, wouldn't it be nice to, if we had a bosun's whistle and then we could pipe them aboard? Well, Dave Holly, friend of the pod, was listening and <laughs> Dave got in touch with me the other day. He said, I want to send you something from Grimsby. <laughs> and I said, it's not fish, is it? Is it? No. And he says, but it's something that came off a boat. And here it's come, the bosun's whistle. We Thank you very much indeed for that, people aboard. We thrilled. can now. I can pipe people aboard. So, yeah, Alex, sure. if you want to read them out, I shall attempt to provide accompaniment that's not too shrill. Okay, here you Okey go. Doke, here we go. Lindy Morrison. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, God. This is great. Julian Kemp. Julian Kemp. Welcome aboard, Julian. Rick Halen. <laughs> Janet Davies, who's a birthday patron. I should be getting a kazoo or something and joining Fantastic. in. Fantastic. And good. Joe Galloway. Wonderful. Welcome aboard. Well, welcome aboard. You're the first ones to be piped aboard. So if you'd like to be officially piped aboard yourself, if you go to uh, patreon.com word in your ear and find a way that you can get involved uh, and that that signal honor could be extended <laughs> to you in, in a future week and thanks very much indeed for dave for holly coming on board that's brilliant to dave holly for providing dave incidentally i'll give a plug to dave does a very interesting and very good podcast called sound of the hound which is if you're very interested in the early days of recording, the very early days of recording is highly recommended. A reader's correspondent from Colin Chalmers has sent us this via Patreon because 
I I think we I'd suggested that the, the the bands who played at Live Aid nobody got bigger after Live Aid. He says, "Well, you two did." Yeah, fair enough. They def- definitely did. And you two and Queen were while all was a big band, but there was a huge increase in their profile. Never got smaller. Adamant, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And the other thing you wanted to talk about was how have we now seen the death of the live album? He said, um, you know, he used to be a great thrill for him while browsing through rhythmic records in Greenock and uh, finding a live album. Even better, a double gatefold live album, even possibly everything on the top shelf, from the Buddha camp. That was was the ideal thing, was something to get excited about. How many people recorded live albums at the Buddha camp? Loads, didn't they? Well, I think it was part of the deal if you did the tour, you know, you, you... you could, if you did a Japanese tour, you recorded the Budokan because you would sell it again in Japan. Wouldn't yeah, because Japan interesting, and the people people probably still do record live albums at the Budokan because Japan still has a very very strong record market, doesn't it? Streaming has never really yeah. taken over in Japan. Uh, but he wants to know: is it because in um, in Scotland, you know, uh, that, that it was hard to see decent bands? But and also because it was a like an alternate greatest hits album, although sometimes the live versions were your preferred version. I I think it, I think it's another thing, uh, Colin. And I don't know if I'm going to find agreement here. Was it not? You know, if your favourite band made a live album, you got it, you repaired to your room. You took out a tennis racket or whatever was your chosen <laughs> you implement. Down. Oh, yeah. You turned the lights down and you hoped your mum and dad were out or whatever. You hit the opening chord and heard a roar of applause. <laughs> and you just acted out the entire record. Did you or did you not? I was guilty. I'm prepared. We've all to done it. Forward. We've done that. Yeah, Alex, if you knew you must, must have done that, Alex. Oh, yeah, yeah. I still managed to play a bum note and a tennis racket, though. <laughs> <laughs> still came in late on a tennis yeah. racket. Uh, so, yeah, Colin, that's that's what I think was the um, was the great thrill, you know, to kind of to make yourself a star, you know, in your imagination, in your bedroom. Maybe people don't do that anymore, you know. Maybe, maybe it's something to do with social media. Everything's to do with social media, isn't it, nowadays? Well, actually, you know what? I'm going to let you into a little secret. Before I was into, into the rock, I was quite into uh, 90s techno as a, as, a, as a young boy. And uh, I used to buy my techno singles and repair to my room. And make what, with a glow stick? No, I used to make up dances. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Did you give you used them to names? make up dances? I used to make up dances, yeah. Did you give them names? I did. No, I gave one move a name. It was, the, it was called the crisscross, where you used to sort of walk and cross your legs in front of each oh, other. That's great. Uh, then, uh, then I changed and I discovered the guitar and uh, the dancing shoes went in the bin, which is uh, best for everybody, really. But there we go. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.